0: sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to
1: Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to episode 70-something of You Don't Have to Yell. It is your resident bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here and the subject of voter fraud may seem passe to some of us but there is still a good chunk of the american electorate that feels the 2020 presidential election was stolen and this is part of a larger trend i brought up on this podcast where folks inhabit their own factual universes on everything from covid to climate change And it becomes very difficult to make decisions from a shared objective truth. And this is what makes my next guest so exciting. Michael Epstein, a PhD in computer science with a specialization in quantitative analysis, saw this trend as well and wrote his most recent book, Bigfoot Does Not Exist, in response to it. In the book... He provides a crash course in statistical analysis, along with a framework we can all use to have logical, honest discussions about today's most pressing problems. Now, spoiler alert, you may be disappointed. We neither proved nor disproved the existence of Bigfoot, but we do learn a lot of great stuff along the way. I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. With me tonight... I have Mr. Mike Epstein. Mike, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. And Mike is the author of a new book entitled "Bigfoot Does Not Exist," uh, and and I think it's especially an especially relevant book uh, given the state of affairs in American political discourse. So. I'm not going to steal Mike's thunder here. I'd like him to talk a little bit about his book. But first, Mike, if you don't mind introducing yourself and just talking a little bit about your background.
0: Absolutely. So uh, I'm Michael Epstein. Uh, my, in terms of academics, my uh, degree is in electrical and computer engineering. Um, and I studied specifically uh, perception. And I, I had a, a particular interest in auditory perception because I love music. I played music for years. And so... Um, in the process of going through school and uh, in, in doing research and uh, conducting scientific studies, I found that uh, after taking statistics uh, and studying scientific method extensively, having many, many courses in it, that I really, w- one day I woke up and realized I really didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of an, a, an epiphany. I'm like, you know, I made it through five courses in statistics. I've gotten A's in all the courses, but I really don't get it. Uh, And it just kind of clicked one day, and I realized that there's something about the way that it's taught and the way that people discuss scientific method and statistics that really wasn't connecting with me and I don't, I think, didn't connect with other people. So I wanted to write this book um, to introduce people to the fundamentals of it. And now at this point, I've taught statistics and research methods at four different universities and about seven different programs to to (laughs) a wide, wide variety of students. Um, so the book was kind of a compilation of what I thought were best practices for introducing people to the topic of scientific method and, and statistics. And so uh, the, the goal is to be really accessible without uh, requiring any mathematics because people get scared. I, I teach statistics currently in a psychology program, a master's of psychology program. Uh-huh. And the first week the students are all say, I'm really nervous about this class. I'm not really good at math. I don't, you know, I don't really understand this. Um, and by the end, they're like, you know, this is nothing like what I expected. This is really about thought and discourse and, and um, understanding the way that we frame problems and discuss problems. Yeah. And so I hope that, you know, what we talk about today, we'll be able to think about how we, how we approach problem solving and how we approach thought. That's really, that's my, my interest. That's
1: why I wrote the book. Yeah. And I'm going to throw a really loaded question at you. Sure. <laughs> why is this book important right now? This book is important right now. I mean, very specifically, I wrote this book
0: right now or in the last couple of years because I thought there was a serious, serious degradation of the way in which we have actual uh, logical and informational discourse. Uh, There's a lot of misinformation out there. And it's really frustrating because um, I think a lot of misinformation is rooted in the fact that we don't agree on what the basic tenets of having discussions about information are and i think that's a really critical thing and that's uh, you know that's i think that's what we're going to end up talking about today is like there are actually rules to how you can have debates or conversations and if you don't agree to play by those rules it becomes pointless you know anybody can claim anything uh you know you can share information on on facebook that gets spread around and people don't have the skills or the knowledge to be able to interpret that in a what let, let's call it a scientific way but i but i think you know, be, I don't, before I go too far, but I, I don't want to even talk about science because I think people get scared. As soon as you hear science, you're like, yep. oh, there's bias. There's all this. It's not really about science. It's really about all the way that we have logical discourse, the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we communicate. Y-
1: yeah. Well, when it's funny. When I started this podcast, uh, I really did it with the goal of trying to build a framework to find a common truth originally. Um, because what I saw happening is Americans were increasingly living in two entirely separate factual universes. And there was more, you know, quote unquote, supporting documentation and data, supposedly, to Back up somebody's point, then there was time to argue why that was all erroneous. Right. and And so I think one of the most important discussions we can have is really how do we establish a logical framework for reaching a common truth? Um, one question entirely unrelated, the title uh, Bigfoot does not exist. yeah <laughs> where'd you get where'd you get that from?
0: Um, so in developing the course, uh, yeah. w- when I was teaching it, yeah I was trying to think of what is the framework that's going to be fun for having a discussion what can i What can I frame all of this kind of discussion around? And so you know I mean, like people have philosophical discussions about like the existence of of God. that's like the common you know the common one. That's a little too like controversial. um and so I thought about different kinds of things, and I'm like, you know, bigfoot is really fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy Bigfoot. I think Bigfoot is entertaining. And I think it's not that I I found maybe some conflict here, but I think it's not that controversial to to maybe argue that Bigfoot doesn't exist. And, And the point of the book, like just to be clear, the point of the book is actually not to say whether Bigfoot exists or not. The point is to give you the tools to make a proper assessment, a logical assessment about you know what we would need in order to decide that Bigfoot does exist.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny you say non-controversial cuz when I was doing <laughs> right. stand when, when I was doing stand up, I actually performed at a benefit for the uh International Cryptozoological Museum. Right. Up in Portland, Maine. And first off, I was actually I was thinking of this story, you know, as I was getting ready for our webcast here. And I thought to myself, like, what were the exhibits in this museum? Like, there's no evidence. What do you show? Um, But that aside, I will tell you something. So I wrote some Bigfoot specific jokes. And if you so much as joke about the possibility Bigfoot does not exist, those people turn on you. They get like nothing turns right. a Bigfoot crowd colder than even, even entertaining the fact they might not exist. So right. I, outside well, of the cryptozoological <laughs> community, Mike, this is a very non-controversial issue. Hopefully we don't get any, any Bigfoot shade thrown our way for this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I want to break down as much as I can of this book without necessarily taking people through every aspect of it, just to make sure we have a framework to discuss what we're going to get to you know, in the back half of this, which is voter fraud. So there, was some, there were some concepts that I found really interesting um, in terms of being able to determine, like, are you right or are you not? You know, how do you know you're right? And one of the big ones that popped out was the whole concept of the null hypothesis. And can you just explain that to everybody?
0: Sure. Uh, let me let me back up a little bit yeah, around please. around that, uh, if you don't mind. So I think one of the important things that that we need to discuss here is that there's it's not about being right or knowing that you're right or wrong It's about Mm -hmm. looking at evidence that exists and making a proper determination using a a structure And so the null hypothesis is actually maybe the most fundamental tenet of all Discourse whether it's logic, whether it's science, whether it's statistics We usually talk about it in the framework of statistics Um, But it is actually like the the fundamental basis If we're going to have a discussion or an argument or a debate about something we, if we're not going to use the null hypothesis, uh, and something that I'll I'll tie in with that, then we might we may as well stop. Again, you know, yeah. this, this is a necessary point. And the null hypothesis is basically a statement that some effect, whatever it is that we're looking at, some some effect, some difference, some uh, e- existence, w- we're looking at. we the null hypothesis states that it does not exist. Mm-hmm. So, if we're talking about Bigfoot, the null hypothesis is that Bigfoot does not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, The reason this is important is that it's not it, it's something that you cannot prove. It is a not a falsifiable claim. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't mind me framing that a little more, uh, yeah. we're talking about bigfoot if if you wanted to prove, you know, in the book, I talk about this a lot, but if you want to prove that Bigfoot does not exist, if you want to truly be able to prove that, you would need to simultaneously look assuming we say Bigfoot lives on Earth, right? Let's start, let's start with that framework. Yep. Uh, you would need to simultaneously look at every single place on Earth mm-hmm. and say, Bigfoot is not here. We have now proven that Bigfoot does not exist. Now, mm-hmm. that's not a, not a feasible thing to do. So with the concept of the null hypothesis, we start with the assumption that Bigfoot does not exist. We start with that, that null, that negative thing. Um, and we require something that we call burden of proof. Mm-hmm. That if you want to make a claim that Bigfoot exists, you have the burden of proof. Mm-hmm. If I say if I say that Bigfoot does not exist, that's the null hypothesis. That's our starting point. I actually don't need to provide evidence of that to to start from that.
1: Does that does that uh, give you a good? It, starting it makes, framework? It, it actually. Thank you, because that that fills in a couple gaps that I left in my uh, in my explanation there. Which is, you know, the one thing I'd like everybody watching and everybody listening to take away from this is there is no way to be 100% certain about anything. And that's incorrect. That's not really the goal of scientific method. The goal is to have a low enough probability of being incorrect that you can make a decision. Right? Exactly.
0: And that's a super important distinction
1: because... People will say uh, so. Right now, let, let,
0: let's take Bigfoot as the example. Yeah. Right now, I can say based on science, and and you know, people can argue about what evidence we have. But I, if I look at the evidence that Bigfoot exists, I think there's not really sufficient evidence to claim that Bigfoot exists. And I can say based on the the scientific method. There's not enough evidence to claim that Bigfoot exists. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds, like a weak, that sounds like a weak statement because I'm not saying that Bigfoot does not exist. I'm saying that there is not enough evidence to say that Bigfoot exists. And that is the scientific framework. Effectively, colloquially, we can say Bigfoot does not exist. That's the same thing, colloquially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, now, the important thing here uh, is that if tomorrow, if you, if you say, you know, I, I'm going to go find Bigfoot tonight... Tonight you go out, you catch Bigfoot, you bring him to me tomorrow, we do a genetic test, it's a new species. I wasn't wrong to say today that Bigfoot didn't exist. It's not that I was wrong. It's that I looked at the evidence that was there today, and I made a conclusion based on that evidence. Now, if tomorrow we have new evidence, the strength of the scientific method and the strength of science is that we can adjust that claim and say, yes,
1: there's new evidence, now Bigfoot does exist. That's true and and that's kind of where i think a lot of these issues get muddied up so you know a couple we can take in is you know one of the big issues is climate change right. um, i think it's it, one of the things that you mentioned in your book is a lot of times it's the way scientists couch it as well can often be misleading cuz if you're saying we don't have sufficient evidence to support that uh that man-made carbon emissions are are not behind climate change that's a very that's a much weaker statement than carbon emissions are causing climate change.
0: Right, exactly. And scientists try to be precise and people don't like precision. This is, this is something in the book too. It's like, you want a definitive answer. People are mm-hmm. mad that science, they're like, but science changes its mind, it doesn't really know, it's not really sure, but it, that, that's not the case. Yeah. The, ca- the case is that science is trying to be very precise. So if I say there's no evidence that Bigfoot exists, that's actually the most precise statement That is physically possible. It really is the most, there's no more precise statement than that. I can't say anything beyond
1: that. And and kind of bringing that again into the issue of voter fraud too, there is no way any one of us would be able to count enough ballots in our lifetime to even tabulate the result of one presidential election. Right. And so there are are no way, there's absolutely no way any person can reach 100% certainty that they are correct but there are ways we can reduce the likelihood that the wrong person is made the ruler of the free world or exactly
0: the... yeah so you know to to put a framework of the bigfoot thing if i said we had to look everywhere in the world to see that bigfoot didn't exist you know that that's the only way we could show it how could we how could we really know what the election was like we would have to see every ballot you know we'd have to have uh, uh, somebody or a group of people verifying that every ballot was filled out the way that, you know, the outcome was was uh, recorded, yeah. which is an impossible task, right? So we can't do that. But
1: again, the burden of proof lies on the person making the claim. Yeah. So, so and again, we'll maybe we'll just jump right into it here. You know, if we're talking about voter fraud, if I'm somebody who says, the uh, the election was won via fraudulent means or, right. you know, Joe Biden somehow rigged the election to uh, create a seven million vote gap in the popular vote. Right. The first thing I have to do in order to substantiate that claim is take the is take that null hypothesis and say voter fraud played no meaningful part in the outcome of the 2020 election. Correct.
0: Right. So, if we're going to conduct a, a, a scientific study or a logical, again, we could throw thro- throw the word science out because yeah, it scares people. If yeah. we're going to look at it as a thought exercise or a logic exercise, we have to start with the assumption that there was no voter fraud, that their voter fraud did not happen. Yeah. And then it's your job if you if you're going to say the election was unfair,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's your job then to provide evidence that. There was something unfair that happened,
1: yeah, and so what are some of the common mistakes people make when interpreting data or when providing evidence
0: sure that's a that's a great question i mean there there are uh, countless, but um, the the most common are the most, uh, this is now I'm going by like, you know, Facebook arguments, right? Cause this yeah. is really the world, the world we live in at this point is essentially like one giant social media argument. Pretty much. Um, yeah. <laughs> so if I'm talking about Facebook arguments, the most common thing, and I got into a lot of, a lot of arguments with people about, uh, about the coronavirus about COVID-19 mm-hmm. um, is something called cherry picking, which mm-hmm. is basically saying, uh, uh, yeah, I trust doctors. I trust scientists but I'm only going to pick the scientists and doctors who are saying the thing that I agree with. Yes. So in other words, like I, you know, I got into a big fight with this guy because I, I there's a huge amount of evidence, um, you know, that people are dying at a, at a relatively high rate. You know, we could discuss exactly the rate, whatever, but there's, there's a, a good amount of evidence. There's a pretty clear model for it. And there was one doctor in California who basically said, no, everything is off. Only like 0.001 percent of people, Actually, die who get the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, and so, a friend of mine is like, "How come you're, you know, you say you're you're interested in science, and you say you're interested in medicine, but you won't listen to this one doctor? They're they're a you know a scientist. They're a medical professional. Why won't you listen to them?" And the point is, I will listen to them, but I will also listen to the thousand other uh, discussions of it and framings of it. And so, if you see one anomalous piece of information. Uh, If you are looking to prove something that is, you know, that's not necessarily the case, you might do what we call cherry picking, where you say, I'm going to choose that one piece of information and I'm going to sort of bolster that i'm going to put that on a pedestal and ignore all of the conflicting information
1: yeah well that was that was what was working my last nerve during the early stages of the pandemic when people would just like pop up some internet rando and you know just make them the base make them the base of their argument my favorite one my favorite one i'm going to apologize to anybody watching who matches this description but my favorite one was well i was looking through the data. It's like, well, who asked you? You know, like, like, like you sell vitamins. Like, that's right. fine, but you're not like qualified to do that. Right. So, so it, it 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 so cherry picking's one. Yes. What are the, some of the other things people? Some do? Some of the other things are uh, w- one of the biggest issues that I see currently
0: is what it, it's not. Um, it's not actually looking at, at at the data. This is this is maybe an issue. It's looking at an interpretation of it. That's done by somebody who either has an agenda or is, you know, maybe misinterpreting things. So the other day, this is, um, I think it was, I want to say it was the LA Times. I apologize if it was a different newspaper. Yeah, LA Times had an article that said one in three Los Angeles residents has had COVID. I'm sorry, I've moved this over to, to COVID discussion, but it's like, you know, it's a topic. We
1: can fight about COVID yeah. too. That's fine. Yeah. Right.
0: I mean, again, this is just you know the data that are in the in the news right now. So it's an I think it's an interesting kind of thing to talk about. But it said one in three uh, Los Angeles residents has had co- has or has previously been infected with the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, and so if you look at that article, you're like, oh my god, it's it's this tremendous you know n- number of, of people. But the fact is. If you actually examine, you dig a little deeper, because you know, I'm interested in science and I, I, am, I can actually take that and dig. I'm like, where is this article? Where, where are they getting that information from? Mm-hmm. And I dig a little deeper and I start looking and it's either something that's um, what we call a pre-publication. It hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's a publication where they have a model. And this is what often happens. The scientists who are writing the paper don't say that one in three residents of Los Angeles... Uh, had coronavirus what they say is here's a model where we predict the amount the the number of people who've had coronavirus here are the ranges of possible outcomes based on the data we have in that model and based on our numbers it ranges from you know like let's say five percent to 33 percent now they're not actually asserting that they think that 33 percent of people have had it you know they may think like it's close to about 10 percent or something like that but the um you know, somebody writing an article m- might be more excited to say, well, you know, w- we can just say one in three because we see that this model says up to one in three.
1: Yeah. Where does that like where does that whole process get slipped up? Is it like is there somebody yeah. at the you know university level who figures, oh, if we make this really sensational claim, it'll get attention and we'll get more funding? Or is it somebody in, you know, working in some newsroom who needs to punch up some study and so makes up yeah. some, I mean, who, what, what happens?
0: I think everybody's a little bit responsible okay. um, a lot of times. So, you know, so I did, I did research at a university for for many, many years. Yeah. And um, I've had, you know, I've had work that was published um, it, written up in like scientific American and, you know, ma- major papers like that, major mainstream kind of news uh, outlets like that. And what happens is somebody at the institution writes a press release and they ask you for input and they try to you know kind of get it right but they're gonna frame it so that it's a lot more exciting (laughs) than the actual Mm -hmm. thing is or they're gonna frame it like uh you know this is the like a, a study that that i did um for example we got some information about how to test for a type of hearing loss that isn't really detectable using normal methods and a lot of young people Especially musicians, so people who are exposed to loud music, were testing uh, in a way where we could detect that they had some damage to their auditory system before mm-hmm. they actually, you know, exhibited the signs of hearing loss. Yeah. So you know, Scientific American is going to say like, all young people have hearing loss, or like young people yeah. are in danger. Like it's going to be a lot more framed, a lot more excitingly than the actual. Uh, context of the article. Now that comes from the PR system, where the you know the the institution is going to send out a press release that's like, here's the exciting angle on this. The writer of the article is going to like look for the exciting hook because, you know, let let's face it, everything is is about clicks and about uh, advertising and mm-hmm. and so on. I can't totally blame the media for it. And what what I hope to do, you know, what what one of the goals with the book is, is to empower people to be able to read that article and understand like, oh, that's really interesting, but if I dig a little deeper, I can actually get like the real, you know, more accurate interpretation of that.
1: Yeah, do you think in a lot of ways, maybe we as a population have been primed for this sort of thing, you know? Uh,
0: definitely, I mean, I, you know, we're, we move very fast and we read only headlines and we, you know, we look for excitement. It's a, it's a, it's an adrenaline thing. You know, we kind of love the doom scrolling or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever we want to call it. Yeah. Um, we're looking for like the the big pushes. We're not looking for subtlety or nuance. And the the, the plain fact is that science is kind of boring. I mean, like I, you know, I hate to I, I hate to throw it under the bus there, but like, uh, you know, I the work that I did, like if I were to tell you the 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 scientific work that I did and actually like give you the exact implications of it, and the exact way it fits in, it's pretty boring. It's a tiny detail in you know a larger framework, but yeah. like, thousands of people doing that build up to something you know exciting and
1: cool. we're going to take a short break and be back in a moment with michael epstein i hope you're enjoying this episode and i wanted to take a short break to make a very special announcement now every week if you've listened to this podcast before You hear me hammer on the point that the state of affairs in government is a direct result of the way we run elections. And the best way to solve the problems of partisan polarization and gridlock is to reform elections and open the field to more competition. And you also hear me hammer on how you all should get involved. Well, I am happy to announce that I've taken my own advice and am working with an organization called Rank the Vote to help bring ranked choice voting to every state in the U.S. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you will know that ranked choice voting makes it easy for voters to vote for their first choice without the fear of inadvertently getting their last choice elected. And it's currently being used in Maine and Alaska, as well as numerous other cities around the country. It is by far the most practical, feasible way to open up our elected officials to more true competition. Now, you can learn more about Ranked Choice Voting and how you can get involved in your state at rankthevote.us. And if you have questions, you can hit me up on ydhty.com or on social media via the hashtag YDHTY. I hope you'll join me and now back to the episode you know one of the mental traps i think we fall into when we're trying to examine a situation logically is you know we as non scientifically trained humans just naturally gravitate towards the most sensational stuff but there's also there are also some you know cognitive weaknesses or some habits that that result in it too and and one of the ones you 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 bring up in the book, which I just found really interesting, was apophenia.
0: Yes. Apophenia is an amazing concept um, because, so the, the concept of apophenia is that basically we see patterns in things where there aren't really patterns. Mm-hmm. We're, we're very, very uh, attuned to finding patterns. So the most, the most like famous common example is that when you look at the clouds, you see faces or you look yep. at like a stain on the wall, you see a face. And it's not, it, it's because The human brain uh is looking for patterns so like Mm -hmm. i'll give you an example evolutionarily if you need to know if there's a bear hiding behind a tree it's way better for you to accidentally think that there's a bear when there isn't than Mm -hmm. to think that there is not a bear when there is right we it's called it's something called a false positive In, in statistics we call it a type one error or a false positive yeah so false positives in the world, in an evolutionary sense, are totally fine. Like it's okay to have a false positive. We'd rather have a false positive than a false negative, where we don't see something that's dangerous.
1: And, and so, and that su- that concept is super interesting. I don't know if if you've ever seen the Twitter feed "Faces and Things." Uh, I haven't, but I but it's, I can
0: imagine. Yeah,
1: <laughs> this is a plug for everybody. It is absolutely the most fantastic Twitter feed around. Um, it, yeah, and. And I think getting into whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about COVID, whether we're talking about now the issue of voter fraud, um, a, a lot of times people have this natural tendency to see a pattern where one doesn't exist in right. uh, in the in the data. Um, and number two is this. Is this uh, whole issue of 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 confirmation bias in a way combining with that, where um, the patterns are automatically reflecting your opinion of what happened in a way? and so right. you're in- you're interpreting this subset of data in a way that uh, that's that's really more in line or really more reflective of what you're thinking exists rather than maybe uh, the data is instructing you exists in a way.
0: You bring up like uh, an extremely important point in the context of all this. so We're very good at detecting patterns evolutionarily. Again, it makes sense. Like we want to see that threat in terms of evolution or the, the way that the human mind has developed. I don't think that we've really uh, thinking about something like conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the the cavemen weren't, uh, weren't affected by conspiracy (laughs) things, right? It's not, it's not really uh, so much of an issue. So we weren't, you know, we're left with remnants of a system that's attuned to, to threats that were there, you know, as humanity developed, and they're not really this necessarily ne- the same threats, or we have new types of threats that are present in how we operate cognitively. Yeah, and um, you know, in terms of what you're talking about, this is why this null hypothesis framework is really important because if you start with the conclusion, if you say, uh, you know, I know that this happened or it exists, you start seeing. This is, this is how the brain works when you're primed to look for something, you start seeing that pattern in everything mm-hmm. you start you start believing things when somebody primes you I mean this is like a common uh, psychological test if I tell you that something is going to happen, you know you're more likely to think that that did happen or that, that it, it, it will happen or you know mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're going to believe that because you're primed to do it um, Can I give an example uh, Please. From, a, from a class okay. Yeah. So this is, I think this is, you know, again, a little bit si- sidetracked, but um, with all statistics and all science, we're, we're making, like you said, a probabilistic determination
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we're going to be wrong sometimes. That's, that's built into the system. In science, we build in the idea that there's a certain tolerance to being incorrect. Yeah. So like when we're, looking, when we're looking for that bear behind the tree, uh, in terms of our survival, like we're okay with being correct more often than not. In science, you know, maybe we want to balance that a little more, right? Maybe yeah. we're like, we don't want to always detect the think there's a bear when there isn't. So in, in statistics, we often we we use something called alpha. We use a criteria called alpha, mm-hmm. and what we typically do is we say we want to be, and this is a common number. There's no definitive number, but we say as long as we're ninety five percent sure of something, then we're okay making a claim. So if we're not, if we if we do a study, we do a scientific study. And the probability that like there's a real effect or something meaningful in that is 95% or greater, then we're going to say like, yes, this works. Okay. This is good. This is good. And that's really important because um, sometimes we're going to be wrong. I, I So I, I used to teach uh, a statistics class in a room and I would hand out uh, coins. I would tell the whole class, I would say, I'm going to give you all uh, a penny and in the class, one of these pennies is gonna be a weighted coin. There's gonna be an unfair coin that flips either heads or tails more frequently than not. Um, and so we would conduct the study and based on that probabilistic model, there's gonna be a 5% chance that we're just wrong. So mm-hmm. if you have a class of you know roughly 20, 30 people, The odds that somebody, you know, just by chance, by luck, by actually just flipping heads, you know, a whole bunch of times in a row is going to say, oh, yeah, my coin is weighted uh, is pretty high, like in that whole class. And (laughs) so I would give them all coins. None of the coins were weighted. Inevitably, in every class, you know, somebody would turn up and say, like, I got the weighted coin. Mm -hmm. They would believe that. Um, And it's important because they believe I primed them by saying one of the coins is weighted and then they believed me and thought that they were the one that was special. You
1: know? Yeah. And so, you know, it's funny. I saw, so one of the things I saw shared on um social media shortly after the election was this post by this person who said they had a career in statistical analysis and took a look over the voting results and realized something was off. And so, I'm going to, again, my own bias is going to come out here. So I'll ask you to shoot me down if I'm off, but it's probably fair to assume that if I am taking the time to go into the voter data to verify it as a independent citizen, I'm probably already going in with some preconceived notion that something's off to begin with. Correct?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think that's certainly true. And I also think you don't, as a citizen, I don't think you really have access to, to you know, meaningful data. I mean, yeah. I, like I know people are like, well, this doesn't add up. Like I'm I'm suspicious, right? So if you're going in with the assumption that something is off, you're going to find something. You know, you're going to you're going to be able to detect something that's off because you've already you, if you're if you know there's like you know something there, then you'll you're not you're not using the methodology where we start with the assumption that nothing is there and then we look for evidence to contradict that. You're starting with the assumption something's there and then you find something that you're like, that's enough evidence. I've decided this is enough because I've already decided this is true. So yeah. I think you're right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of maybe building on that then, it, you know, if 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 I'm just kind of thinking through this argument aloud. So we so we start off with two opposing parties. One has to take the opinion voter fraud had an impact on the election. The other has to take the opinion that it does not or that it did not. And we kind of have to clear data off the table, right? And so then we move to the next step, which is what other evidence exists that the vote might have been tampered with. Um, And so I'm going to ask you a question already knowing the answer because I read the book. (laughs) But, um, you know, so there were stories that came out about, you know, truckloads of ballots coming down from New York to Pennsylvania or uh, about suitcases being brought into a counting room in Atlanta and then all the poll watchers being kicked out. Um, and people use that as an argument to say, Hey, something's up. We need to dig more into this. What's your response to that?
0: Right. Well, I mean, look, if you have evidence, that evidence needs to be presented mm-hmm. and evaluated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so something like a person saying, I saw something suspicious, or I said, you know, they I, I there are a number of of, of, of kind of popular f- funny cases, right There's the woman in the in the courtroom who maybe was drunk, maybe wasn't yeah. you know, like who's like, I saw some weird stuff in the book. you changed it all like you know that's not really good evidence right yeah that's not, that's not she's not really clear. They even asked her for clarification. They say, like, well, what exactly did you see? Can you explain what you said? you know they were they were being very respectful about like trying to get what that is so that you know it, her saying like something's wrong is not, I wouldn't even call it anecdotal evidence. I would call it like speculative, like nonsense evidence. Yeah. Um, Another case, somebody went outside and said like, they saw a truck full of whatever, you know, ballots being moved. Um, Maybe that you could argue, maybe that's anecdotal. I don't even, I'm not even sure. Like that's very weak anecdotal evidence. So in, in other words, somebody telling a story that like something happened, but they don't have something that we can objectively assess it's a subjective experience or a subjective idea about that. We don't typically consider that to be very good evidence in or you know an evaluation. It's not it's not that it can't be evidence at all. It's mm-hmm. that it's on the weaker side, right? It's it's kind of poor evidence.
1: Yeah. And so basically if I'm kind of recapping what you're talking about in the framework of of the I guess, now extinguished debate around voter fraud. I'm not quite sure. But um, if, I'm, if I'm framing it in that context, then we start off with a group of people either primed to believe the election is fair or the election was rigged. The election takes place. What they think was going to happen happens in their eyes. And now they are looking for evidence to back it up. Um, right. Now, one side takes the opinion that, The vote that the election was run fairly, that based on state certifications and state processes for ensuring it was run fairly, uh, we can trust the count to a degree that we can assume Joe Biden is the duly elected president of the United States. Um, The other side, again, we're we're the the side that is taking the opinion that voter fraud did have a significant uh, impact on the election is now relying on, uh, a series of, of, events or anecdotes to justify, uh, their, their take on it. Um, the, the, the question I have, or, or, one of the, one of the concepts I want to get to now kind of saying all that is the concept of Occam's razor, because that's another thing you discussed in your book that can be used as a framework to figure out which is, what is true and what isn't. And can you explain that concept sure. for folks I who mean, aren't familiar?
0: right the, the I mean the short version is just like is is the the idea of keeping it simple right that, that like if you have an elaborate insane <laughs> explanation for something, mm-hmm. that's probably like gonna be less good than a, a simple explanation that also explains the same the same mm-hmm. thing, right yeah. i mean that's yeah I, I give the example of the models of um the uh the solar system and so like the original m- models of the planetary orbits when we say we have a geocentric solar system, that the earth is at the center of the solar system, you can create a mathematical model or a, a physical model where like the sun ro- revolves around the, rotates around the earth and, uh, um, uh, you know, all the planets do these crazy patterns. But in order to have that model work, it, it looks completely, you know, it's like all these lines that look completely nuts. And mm-hmm. if you look at a, a heliocentric model, the orbits are very simplistic yeah so, so neither one is wrong this is important because neither one is wrong but we as scientists defer to the model that is the the simple kind of sensible one it's not you know this is not a strictly real principle like i it's it's a it's a way of thinking i guess is the way i would say it.
1: yeah well i and and i think like i, I want to get back to to the the idea of complexity and the idea of conspiracy theory in a bit but you know the the thing i'd like to stress to everybody who's watching and and to everybody who's listening is you know it's this mes- method that we use to kind of place bets on what's going to work and what's going to be safe so before i send a probe to mars for example right i need to place a bet that i have a reasonably that i have a reasonably good idea of where Mars is going to be when that rocket arrives to a certain point in space. And I can either choose the Earth-centric model or the heliocentric model for it. And so again, if I'm investing millions and millions of dollars to send something into space, right, um, I am going to look for the model that I have the greatest certainty is the right one, and I will choose the simplest one, because that's a heliocentric okay. one, rather than some yeah. confounding astrological mechanism that we that we have in the earth-centric model is that
0: it's true but you could you could actually do the math and land on mars using the the geocentric model you it it would work really it's just that it would be a lot harder like so it (laughs) it it, it requires a lot it's not wrong again it's not wrong in The, the idea of occam's razor is not that one is wrong and one is right yeah it's that one is we just like to frame things in a way that like we can draw. we can, it's going to be easier for us to draw conclusions from. Sure. So rather sure. than spending huge amounts of resources trying to use this crazy model to get land on Mars. We have the simple one that, you know, a, a,
1: a college student could calculate the trajectory to or something like that. Right. Got it. Got it. And so to, to, to maybe flip the, the, the whole, concept of, of voter fraud or to, to flip the whole concept of the debates we get into on its head and, and really give folks something, you know, practical to work with here. Um, the things we should all be aware of in ourselves is number one, the idea that we're primed. So yeah. the idea that we are fed uh, preconceived notions about events, things, and people that are going to skew how we perceive events. And then the second part of that is that we have this natural tendency to find patterns and find danger and seek sensationalism. So if we are primed to anticipate a certain catastrophe occurring, um, then we are going to find evidence of that catastrophe occurring, whether it occurred or not.
0: That's right. correct. Yeah, I think that's a, good, a really good way to put it. Okay. And, um, and again, so, you know, let me frame this. A, a broader way is I even whatever you want the outcome of the election to be mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what whatever your voting preference is we still need to start with what what you described you know what we talked about as the null hypothesis and the idea that we need to find defi- if we want to make a claim if we want to say there is fraud we need to find evidence of that right mm-hmm. so regardless even if you know if I really believe there was fraud that's that's it's okay as long as I, I kind of like dismiss that from my mind and I look carefully. I think, you know, I, honestly, look, I, I think my politics are probably clear from my hair and whatever else, <laughs> but I want the election to be fair.
1: Yeah.
0: I, like I don't like, I would rather if the outcome is not what I want, uh, then the election is not fair. Like I, that's a way worse. That's a way worse scenario to me than not getting what I want. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I remember saying on an episode that I did right before the election, I would, and I'm I make no bones about how I how I voted in this election, um, but I said I would much rather have a, a decisive Trump win than have a narrow contested election where nobody feels like they got a fair shake, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'd agree with you, and I think. And, and, and I do think it's a, it, it is a, it's, it's a big, it's, it's an American problem. You know, I think, uh, I think a lot of times, I think folks watching this could get the impression that I'm trying to portray this as a problem for Trump supporters only, or right. I'm trying to support the, the Biden camp in this. And, and, and in, in and in my mind, I, I, I don't think that's the case because everybody is, uh, subject to the weaknesses that, that we've been talking about, you know, everybody has confirmation bias. Everybody has, uh, apophenia. Right I don't here. even know if it's like a case of apophenia, like yeah. diagnosed with it, or is it just something everybody has? I don't know.
0: It's, everybody has it, uh, you know, in All severe, right. in severe cases, I mean, the person who, who first studied apophenia tied it into like schizophrenia and, and pattern detection when, you know, in, in, a what i guess would be you know mental illness that it can, yeah. it can it can go to that i mean i would call conspiracy thinking mental illness to some to some degree you know but whatever the line is for that um but the important thing with voting too is this election i mean let, let's you know talk about this election i don't think we've ever had an election under greater scrutiny than this one No, I don't don't think there's ever been a deeper examination of it. I don't think there's ever been more of an opportunity to present cases in front of, um, you know, judges who who are Republican judges, who are, you know, Democratic judges. Mm -hmm. Everybody has looked at this case. um, And they're just, again, we go back to that burden of proof idea. If you want to claim Mm -hmm. that there was voter fraud, you need to provide evidence of it. And and that evidence, you know, like I, I saw a lot of people talking about it, you know. There was a lot of tweeting and uh, other things about like, that we got so much fraud, everything's fraud. But the problem is, as soon as you, uh, you go to court or you go to a, a place where there, there's an actual like, evaluation, you're now obligated to go through a process. And, and the court process is similar to a scientific process. Yeah. The court process evaluates evidence, um, starting with the assumption, again, a, a court process starts with the null hypothesis, the assumption that there is no voter fraud, that there's no case looks at the evidence, and then if there is sufficient evidence to reject that null hypothesis to say, we actually do see fraud, um, that ruling will happen. And, you know, we saw no, we really saw no uh, substantial evidence of fraud. I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to.
1: Yeah, and I think to maybe apply the Occam's razor principle to this as well, you know, we have one of two scenarios here, which is either that, again, Joe Biden won the election by a 7 million popular vote margin or that the election was rigged to give Joe Biden a 7 million vote margin that governors and secretaries of state of both parties certified results that confirmed Biden the winner of their state that over 60 courts and a Supreme Court, one third of which was appointed by the loser of the current election, uh, didn't d- somehow were in on the game right. to deny this case a voice um, and and it just seems like there are way too many dominoes or way too many devices that need to be put into place in order for that to occur right so,
0: and so, Akama's razor is a great example because both of those could be true, right? Yeah, both those things could be true. We don't, we don't know which is true, right? Yeah, both, both those are possible. Yeah, but, but like you know, I, there was a comic strip that was like a, a, a Trump voter um, in heaven, and they said to they said to God. Uh, you know, they're just arriving in heaven. They said, did Joe Biden really win the election? And God says, yes, he won by, you know, 7 million votes. And, uh, the Trump voter says, wow, this goes all the way to the top. Yeah. Like it's at some point, at some point, uh, the explanation that this many people are willing to participate in a a ruse. I mean, this is all, you know, a lot of conspiracy thinking is like, it requires the cooperation of an enormous number of people being dishonest. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, to the point, like I really do believe that most people in this country genuinely want the election outcome to be fair, like yeah. uh, again, regardless of what what you want, so uh, you know this Occam's razor idea that like, yes, that model explains it, but it requires such an enormous number of assumptions and, and things that are unlikely to be true.
1: Yeah, I'm going to give everybody an analogy that hopefully they can understand, which is if you're having problems understanding why conspiracy theories are generally false, have you ever been involved in planning either a bachelor or a bachelorette party? Okay, because trying to get a group of people who get along to all row in the same direction, is a challenge in and of itself, much less orchestrating a national campaign to defraud an election. Um, getting, getting back to maybe giving folks something practical to take away from this, I, I think there are kind of two really easy things people can, can, can sort of latch on to here. And for the rest, you're going to have to buy the book. And you're going to have to read the book which i would strongly recommend it was extremely illuminating and you will actually learn how to read that data that you love to share on social media but i think the two things i would take away personally is number one just the concept of the null hypothesis when i go in with an opinion the first thing i ought to be doing is saying the exact opposite so if it's if it's carbon emissions cause Uh, climate change, then I should be saying carbon emissions do not cause climate change. If it's voter fraud, I should be saying voter fraud does not exist. If it's Bigfoot, I should be saying Bigfoot does not exist. All those things. That's the number one. Um, Number two is the concept of Occam's razor or is the concept of typically the most simple of all explanations is the one that's right. And I think those are the two things that I think if all of us could incorporate into our uh, system of discourse into our system of logic, I think we'd be m- much better able to at least reach some sort of common truth. Is there anything else you'd throw into that bucket or?
0: No, I think that's, that's great. I, I just want to add one thing about the null hypothesis. Um, Cause yeah. there's, you know, there's a a movement that let's, let's call it the, uh, you know, skepticism movement or skeptics. Yeah. Um, and I would, I would probably place myself as a skeptic. And I, I to me, a skeptic is somebody who starts with a null hypothesis and then looks for evidence to to reject that. But there is a uh, there is a segment of that kind of movement that takes skepticism to the extreme to mm-hmm. use it as a tool to to again you know start with the bias the negative bias on, on things. So in other words, if let, let's you know talking about voter fraud, right? I'm skeptical yep. that voter fraud happened, right? But if if tomorrow if tomorrow Uh, we determined that those, you know, the Dominion voting machines actually were just adding, you know, there's clear evidence that those were actually adding votes to Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. A responsible person would say, wow, there really was voter fraud. They would change their mind. They would take that data, make that adjustment. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's an extreme skeptic has already decided they know the outcome and refuses to look at new evidence to, you know, to adjust that. Yeah. And there's and, a danger there too. So it's a danger, you know, in, in both directions. Like you said, if you're starting with a bias in either direction, you have to be able to uh make sure that you're you have an open mind uh but not so open that it falls out is the way that people, you know, describe it, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And and the, the you know, the other thing that that kind of brings up too is like it's it is important to uh, it, it's important to have the right degree of skepticism, I think, because, you know, to your point, too much skepticism and you never make a decision. Right. And I think the idea here is, you know, how do we reduce the probability of error to a degree where I can get in a car and know my seatbelt works, or I can take ibuprofen for a headache and know I'm not going to poison myself. You know, there are all of the, a, a lot of the, the, The decisions we make are based on our, you know, based on our feeling that the probability of error error is low enough that it's a safe move. Right. You know, and so I would say when we when we take government into into consideration here and we take big decisions around the direction of this country, you know, we're never going to know. Hundred percent, and you are always, especially with an internet connection. You know, you are always going to find a contrarian voice in there, and I think the I, and, and that contrarian voice is going to look super appealing, right? Right, because it is the rarest and, I, and,
0: and the and most I think that's, fun. That's a strength. I mean, people again, people view that as like a negative side of science, um, mm-hmm. but it's a strength of science that we don't ever know for sure, that we're mm-hmm. never certain, because we need to be open to looking at those probabilities to looking at new evidence and to to making a decision that's reasonable based on that evidence and i think you know you put it great with the probability thing like w- if we need to be you know again in science we usually talk about 95% sure sometimes yeah. 99% that's pretty you know that's a pretty high certainty so we'll say if we're 95% sure we're going to say this this thing but like if you're a really, you know, heavy skeptic, you might say, "Well, I'm not going to agree to that until it's 99.99999% sure." Yeah. And you're never going to believe anything. You're never going to like have any evidence of anything.
1: Yep. So in closing, I'd like to say, "Live a little America." <laughs> that's right. Let's just be 95% sure. 95%. That's cool. And You'll be and wrong it, you'll be wrong sometimes. You'll be wrong 5% of the time. 5% <laughs> that's all right. I'll only make 95 <laughs> decisions and I'll be safe. All right. Well, Mike, thank you very much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you, you so much for
0: having me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And if you've been watching, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, leave comments uh, in YouTube, leave comments in Facebook. I'll be sure to answer them. Uh, don't smash the like button. Just gently touch it, let it know, let let you know you care, but don't, you know, we don't do smashing here. And uh, this will be live on the YDHDY podcast next week so if you missed it you can listen to it or you can just stay up late and watch again on Facebook so thank you all for joining Mike thanks again thanks so much for having me it was very fun so that book again is Bigfoot Does Not Exist and you can find it on Amazon or you can visit the show notes on ydhty.com which will have a link to Amazon which then you can click on to buy it it's up to you so The two takeaways are, number one, start off with the idea that you might be wrong, and number two, search for the simplest possible answer. It's not perfect, and there are a lot of details in there that are filled in in the book, but those two things alone will make it easier to determine whether climate scientists are right about global warming, for example, or whether it's an Alamo-like battle of a small cadre of oil executives pitted against a covert cabal of globalists funded by George Soros. If we can agree on the information and disagree on how to respond to it, we're actually one step closer than where we are today. Now, if you like this episode, be sure to share it. And if you haven't subscribed already, consider this your invitation to do thusly. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTech, YDHTY's editorial advisor is the ad man, Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America by the Big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.